This is Speaking of Faith's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with environmentalist and writer Bill McKibben. He's a scholar in residence at Middlebury College and founder of 350.org, a global climate campaign. I spoke with him on November 3, 2009, from the studios of American Public Media in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in the studios of Middlebury College in Vermont. This interview is included in our program, Bill McKibben on the Moral Math of Climate Change. Download the MP3 of that produced show at speakingoffaith.org. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> you know, we're exact contemporaries. Um, is that right? Yeah, I was at Brown and you were at Harvard, and I have a feeling that I heard years ago that we knew people in common, but I can't remember I'm who they sure were. We I'm did. sure we do, but I think even from those days. Long ago. Yeah, I was born in 1960 also. Yeah. And I have a daughter who was, your daughter was born in 1993? Is that 1993. Right? Yeah, yep. my, I have a daughter the exactly the same age as well. And where is she now? Well, we're she's a we're junior? in Minnesota. She's a sophomore. Mm-hmm. She's a sophomore. sophomore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, where high school is she going to there? She's going to a public charter performing arts high school. Ooh, how nice! Which are you I, in the, You're right in the city there. Or? Yeah, we're we're in St. Paul, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is a city of neighborhoods. You know, <clears throat> <Yep>. <clears throat> Minneapolis has more the no, more I of the St. more of the big city uh, feeling to it. Yep, and. Uh, our studios are in downtown St. Paul, which is one of these downtowns that's always struggling to stay alive. Uh, but we live I, in I, a great little neighborhood kind of between the two cities. I pay attention to Minnesota high schools because I'm the faculty advisor to the Nordic ski team here at Middlebury. Oh, you are? Okay. And we get many excellent skiers I from Hopkins and yeah. places like that. So yeah. we're all... Actually, one thing I'm concerned about with climate change is our snow not staying on the ground all You winter. and me both, you know? sister. Because I Absolutely. started cross-country skiing when I got here. And you had these, because I'm, it's probably this way there, every golf course turns into a cross-country ski course around the corner from your house. But there have been years where there have been That's three it. days. When all the poor guys out Busting themselves for the Berkey have no uh, yeah. <laughs> place to train. Yeah. And, yeah. Have you been to those trails, the Berkeminer Trail? I have. I skied the Berkey one year. Isn't that it's fun? A fun race. I absolutely. haven't done the race. I'm not a, anything professional, but I just have skied those trails, and they're fantastic. You should go up and ski the race. You don't. There's twelve thousand people, eleven thousand five hundred of which are not professional. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll <laughs> I think I feel more confident, pretty much by myself. <laughs> 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 so, Mitch, how are we? Are we okay for sound? Yeah, I think so. Uh, is the engineer on that end still adjusting things, or? Um, I, he can hear me. Is that Steve on that end? Uh, this is actually the intern now, and we're we're all set to go. Okay, thank you. Okay, from here. Yeah. Do you need Mitch? Do you need anything? Do you have sound check? Are we all right? Okay, we'll just plunge in. I think. Um. D- d- oh, is it? Are there people in the room with you? No. No, I'm actually in the uh, the whisper booth okay. here, surrounded right. by egg carton foam. Okay, we heard something, but I think maybe we had the wrong place open. Okay. Um, do you have any questions for me before we start? No, let's just okay. do it. Let's wing it. Okay. Make it sound very All right. fresh. All right. I'm looking forward to this. Okay, well, tell me... Um, 
so where did you actually grow up? You grew up on the, in New England? Well, I grew up all over. Uh, I was actually born in California. My father was a journalist, so we lived in oh. Toronto when I was in elementary school. And then for high school, I lived outside Boston in the town of Lexington mm-hmm. uh, and spent my summers out with a tricorn hat on my head, earning my living by giving tours of Lexington Green, uh, which may explain how I became a sort of political dissident at some point. I never made the mistake of confusing dissent with lack of patriotism. Okay. Um, And, you know, I ask this question of everybody I interview, whether they're a quantum physicist or a theologian or something in between. Um, Tell me, was there a spiritual background to your childhood? Oh, yes. We were good uh, uh, mainline Protestants, whatever flavor was available. I was baptized a Presbyterian and then was in the United Church of Canada. Canada is much more sensible about this. They just have one. Mm-hmm. And then when we moved back to New England, I was a Congregationalist. And when I moved up to the woods of New York, I became a Methodist because that was the only available flavor. So all shades of uh, of, of good mainline liberal Protestantism, that's me. Okay. So you went to Harvard and edited The Crimson, is that right? You were editor mm-hmm. and wrote, yes, then I you was. wrote The Talk of the Town column for The New Yorker. And went to The a, New Yorker. Yeah, it's a, mm-hmm. a stellar CV. Um, how did you get from all that to to writing the end of nature, to the to the curiosity that pulled you to that, which you know, as I as I've been reading you and reading about you, it seems to me this this was at once one and the same time a book you wrote and and a change in the direction of your life. Indeed, and like all changes, it happened uh, both quickly and slowly. Um, I had been writing the talk of the town for the New Yorker in my early twenties, so the most urban job you could imagine. Yeah, exactly. At the same time, I wrote a long piece for the New Yorker about where everything in my apartment came from, and you know, I traced the the back to the oil wells in the Amazon because Con Ed was buying a lot of Brazilian oil because it was low in sulfur, and I was in uranium mines in the Grand Canyon, <laughs> seeing where. They got the uranium for the Indian Point nuclear reactor and on and on and on. And these were in the days when there were really long pieces in The New Yorker. And by the uh, time I was done, I sort of found myself thinking in a new way about the physicalness of the world, uh, how completely dependent even or maybe even especially in Manhattan one was on the actual operation of the physical world even though – it's very easy in New York to convince yourself that you can, you know, just mint money and ideas out of your head, you know, without any help at all. Right. I'd grown up in the suburbs, which are sort of a device for making sure that you never notice the natural world. <laughs> and and so when I, I when I quit the New Yorker, the New Yorker got bought and they fired Mr. Sean, who'd been the editor for 40 years. And in a what seemed at the time like high principle, I quit The New Yorker and um, uh, probably was uh, uh, the best thing I could have done because I might have spent the rest of my life in that very, very nice velvet cage that The New Yorker provided. <laughs> um, I moved up to the Adirondacks because I had no money and it was cheap. The Adirondacks are the great wilderness of the American East. I didn't know them well. I'd spent a few weeks there uh, one winter. 
Um, and I found myself living on the edge of just vast wilderness, many miles from neighbors or town. And I fell in love with that landscape in a really, really deep way. I mean, just the, the sense for the most profound time in my life. It was just the sensation of meeting my wife and realizing this was for me. Mm. And, uh, uh, and therefore, it was all the harder to read the sort of initial scientific papers about climate change, which were coming out in the mid to late 80s. So, they so hit did, me did, like a ton you, of bricks. When you went there, did you did you know that you were going to pursue some of these insights you'd gained in no, that piece? No, I had no, no idea what just, I was going to do. But that's what came Licked to you. Lick my wounds, yeah. 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 Um, and, and, uh, but it was just, uh, it was what was overpowering was the sense that this wilderness, this wildness that I was falling in love with wasn't going to be so wild anymore. Um, I remember there, there's a Thoreau once said that he could walk half an hour from his house and come to a place where no man stands from one year to another and there consequently politics are not for politics or but the cigar smoke of a man. Hmm. Well, you know, from my house in the Adirondacks, I could walk five minutes and come to places I don't think any other human being had ever been. Um, and yet the flora and the fauna were beginning to change, the seasons beginning to shift. It felt different. The, the tone of that book was less fear than sadness hmm. uh, uh, because the big changes weren't yet breaking over our heads the way they are now. Um, then it was mostly the anticipation 20 years ago of what it would feel like to live in a world that meant something different, not just a world that didn't operate effectively or easily anymore, but one that spiritually, psychologically, philosophically meant something different and something less than the one that, that I'd been born into. And this was, I suppose you were writing this in the mid to late 80s, right? The book was published it, in 1989. came out 20 years ago yeah. this fall. That's right. And what I have learned, um, and I think this is the first time that I've seen this fact from your writing, is though, in fact, the what we might call the beginnings of the science of climate change um, had been around for 30 years, right? I mean, it was 1957 that those... Scientists this, at the that's right. The late, they put up the first instrument up in uh, on the slopes of Mauna Loa in Hawaii to measure CO2 in the atmosphere. Until then, what had happened was people had assumed that the oceans were just absorbing most of it, but no one had ever bothered to find out. And in 1956, an oceanographer actually did the calculations and determined that indeed the oceans were already at saturation for CO2. It must be accumulating in the atmosphere. The next year, they put up that instrument, and sure enough, it began to show quite quickly that the CO2 level was rising steadily in the atmosphere. And they spoke of a, what, they, what they described as a large-scale geophysical experiment, the likes of which had never been seen, and, and he, they suggested also the likes of which might not be repeatable because it might have <laughs> catastrophic consequences. Right? We're living in that experiment now, yeah. and it, it is the biggest experiment ever. And the problem is that we live inside the test tube, you know. We right, can't sort right. of wash it out and start over again. We also have trouble seeing from inside the test tube, right? We Absolutely. Can't, we can't. So, you know, and here's something. Here's an image that you gave me, a visual image. Um, 
You wrote, in 1968, when I was a boy, Apollo 8 sent back the first pictures of our planet, that blue-white marble floating in space. Well, those pictures are as out of date as my high school yearbook photo. The, the planet doesn't look like that or behave like that anymore. There's more blue and less white, more cyclones swirling in the tropics. It's a different Earth. We might as well hold a contest to pick a new name. I think that's a very helpful image because we've all seen, all of us who are adults now who've grown up, as you say, inside the test tube with varying degrees of awareness, um, we've all seen that picture, but I don't think people have pointed out to us that that's not even any kind of, that's not the picture we would see now. That's right. And, you know, that that's funny you should read that sentence. Uh, the new book that I've just finished up flows directly from that. It's hmm. uh, it, it, The title of the book is Earth, but spelled E-A-A-R-T-H, Earth. Oh, okay. uh, it, it, it's a planet like the one on which we lived or which we were born, but but different now, different in profound ways. We're seeing substantially more rainfall with each passing decade because warm air holds more water vapor than cold. We're seeing Conversely, much more drought because as that water evaporates up into the atmosphere, uh, it's parching places. We have less ice not only in the Arctic, but uh, probably even more importantly, the, the great glaciers of the Andes and the Himalayas are melting with enormous speed. I, I was in Benares, Varanasi, uh, a couple of months ago organizing for 350.org. And, you know, that's the most timeless scene in the world. Hindu pilgrims have been arriving for thousands of years every day uh, by the score to bathe in the waters of the Ganges. The glacier at the head of the Ganges we think now is going to be melted out by 2035. Hmm. Uh, That timeless scene is going to go and 400 million people who depend on that river are going to have to figure out some other way to water their lives. And, And there isn't any other way. There is no plan B. And, you know, uh, as as you know much better than I do, much more directly than I do, there's um, there's controversy over words that are used, over climate change and the meaning of that and the origins of that and the implications of that. But I think what you're describing is a, a, is a reality, right? It's a changed reality of the natural world, however you want to interpret it. Yeah, and there's actually, I mean, in in the scientific world, remarkably little controversy. Okay. Uh, uh, science has reached a robust consensus about what's going on. And in most of the rest of the world, that's resulted in a robust political consensus. I mean, right now, the conservative party in Great Britain is running an election campaign largely based on accusing labor of not doing enough about global warming. <laughs> right, right. Uh, only in this country is it a you know subject of deep political controversy, and that's because of ideology, not of science. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, while the debate rages on, the world changes and changes in profound ways. The Global Humanitarian Forum, a European think tank, estimated earlier this year that 300,000 people a year are already dying from the effects of climate change largely mosquito-borne disease spreading to places where we've never seen it before. Uh, uh, This world is different, more different, all the time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we've often talked in recent years, decades, about something called compassion fatigue. 
<laughs> I also think this is related, but it's different. I, I think there's such a thing as outrage fatigue, right? Because um, statistics like that and numbers like that, scenarios like that, are are as prone to make people throw up their hands and say, well, then, you know, I can't do anything anyway. I think I'm just talking about human nature, not what our reaction should be, but what they are. I mean, you, you've noted the irony that, that as the cycle, even as the cycles of the earth move more quickly, human society seems to be paralyzed around this issue. But I, I wonder um, if, if there's a part of you that under, understands that, that p- paralysis. Well, yes. I think the part of me that really understands it is the part that thinks people have a legitimate right to feel that way if they really feel there's nothing they can do. Uh And this is such a huge problem that people have had the right, in a sense, to feel that way. I mean, yes, it's important to change your light bulb. Yes, it's also true that we're not going to solve this problem one light bulb at a time. That's really why I went to work a few years ago building these large-scale political movements. And we've just finished the beginning of the biggest one of them, this global effort called 350.org. When we had our global day of action in October, it turned out to be what CNN called the most widespread day of political action in the planet's history on any issue. And what was amazing was to see how willing people all over the world, including and maybe especially in the poorest parts of the world, were to put aside whatever they were doing and try to build that movement. I think the second people have some sense that they can take some real meaningful responsibility, the quicker, the more likely they are to engage. When it just seems too big, that's when we walk away. Mm-hmm. Um, and also... Ironically, uh, tragically, some of the people who are poorest are feeling the most immediate effects of some of this change. Right? I mean, oh, this is something we, yeah. we hear again and again. But it, uh, and of course, Americans could get this. I mean, we could look at Hurricane Katrina. We could look at changing weather patterns. But we are not at the moment North Americans as immediately and uh, impacted in a daily way. I think as many people around the world. It's There's an inverse, almost linear relationship between how much of the problem you caused and how quickly you're feeling the effects. Hmm. So, I mean, I remember being in Bangladesh when they were having their first big outbreak of dengue fever, uh, a disease that's incidence is up 200% across Asia, South America. In fact, I was spending a lot of time in the slums in Dhaka, so I eventually got bit by the wrong mosquito. Right. You got dengue fever, didn't you? Came down with mm-hmm. dengue. Sick as I've ever been. Um, but I didn't die, obviously, and because I was strong and healthy when I went in. Lots and lots of people did die. I can remember going to the hospital in Dhaka and looking at this huge ward full of beds, you know, a couple of hundred beds, and people in every one of them just shivering away. And I remember thinking, God, is this unfair. These people have done literally nothing to cause this. When the UN tries to measure how much carbon each nation emits, you can't even really get a number for the 140 million people in Bangladesh. It's just like a rounding error Mm -hmm. in the whole calculation. Mm -hmm. 
you know, the 4% of us in this country produce 25% of the world's CO2. It's not perfect epidemiology, but the moral math works for me. If there's 100 beds in that hospital, 25 of them are on us. And uh, frankly, it was, I think, as much as anything else, that experience that started me on the path to trying not just to write and speak about this, but to build the sort of movements that might be strong enough to do something about it. So you looked around in that hospital ward and imagined that maybe one in four of those cases had been caused by the United States, people living by in me. our country, by you. By me, right. So, okay, so here, and I want to, we will talk about what, what people can do, but, but b- before we do that, I wonder... Because, you know, it's not just that there's this cascade of uh, really overwhelming information. It's also that the information, especially about climate change, seems to repeatedly cancel itself out. You know, I read things like there's a British study that shows that, that the warming of the planet was offsetting all the ambitious work the British had done to change their energy practices in the last two decades. Um, you know, you you hear about things canceling each other out Um and and also the advice that's given one year about what you should drive, right, or what kinds of light bulbs you should use, that seems to be constantly corrected and updated, even if even if, if people don't disagree, as you say, um, in, in large measure on the science of this. What do you – so here's your chance to say what you would like people to really know, like sort of the basic foundation of what you need to understand to internalize this, to grasp it, where to begin um, – you know, well, the, yeah, and the, I, uh, mean, I think 350, you've said, is the most important number. I mean, maybe you want to start with that. Where, what sure. can you give people to really hang on to and then build their imagination and their action from that? Absolutely. Look, let's do the 90-second course in climate science. It's really not hard. Human civilization has been around for 10,000 years. That's the period that scientists call the Holocene. Uh, the temperature has been very stable and the climate's very stable over that 10,000 years because the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere varied hardly at all. From It was about 275 parts per million, give or take 10 parts per million. Stayed steady. Temperature stayed steady. Civilization flourished. 200 years ago, we learned to burn coal, gas, and oil. We start on the, in retrospect, quite radical project of digging up hundreds of millions of years worth of biology, combusting it, and putting all that carbon into the atmosphere in one big flush. Uh, uh, The amount of CO2 in the atmosphere begins to go up. At a certain point, we realize it's going to be a problem, but we never know where the drop-dead line is. Mm -hmm. In fact, we really don't learn the answer to that question definitively until the summer of 2007. That's the summer that Arctic ice begins to melt so incredibly rapidly. It's when we really look around and see things like how fast glaciers are going. It's the moment at which scientists that I've known for a quarter century who've always been worried and concerned suddenly are calling me in panic in the middle Mm. of the night just Mm. saying this thing is out of control. January of 08, compiling all that real-time data – and combining it with the ever more sophisticated paleoclimate, historical climate data that we get from ice cores and things, our leading scientists begin producing a series of papers that converge on this number 350 parts per million. Here's the bottom line in the abstract of one paper from a NASA team. 
uh, uh, and check out this scientific, you know, this is pretty tough language okay. for scientists. They said, above 350 parts per million, you can't have a planet similar to the one on which civilization developed and to which life on Earth is adapted, okay? Okay. Everything we know about civilization, and whether you date it from Eden or the Buddha or Shakespeare or however you define it, that's all 275 parts per million CO2. We're at 390 parts per million right, right we're now. beyond 350. We're beyond. <laughs> right. We're beyond. We're not like the guy who went to the doctor and the doctor said, someday you keep eating like this, your cholesterol will be too high. Right. We're the guy who went to the doctor and the doctor said, look, I'm really surprised you're not having a heart attack already. Mm -hmm. You're in the zone where people do. You better try to bring it down fast and hope you get it there before the heart attack. And we're having the heart attack. When the Arctic melts, that's not a good sign. Uh, you know, we're beginning to see truly planet-scale effects of what we've done. And so we've got to rein it in. The good news and the bad news is we know what we have to do to do that. We have to stop burning coal and gas and oil. It's not complicated. It's hard, though, because mm -hmm. coal and gas and oil are the center of our economy and the center of modernity. And hence, moving away from them very quickly will require effort of a different scale than we've ever had to apply to anything before. The only even close analogy is the kind of industrial transformation at the beginning of World War II uh, that we underwent, but this for much longer and on an even larger scale. So, uh, okay, that's helpful. That's great. Um, you know, I recently interviewed Mathieu Ricard, who's a Tibetan Buddhist uh, scholar, a monk yes, and wonderful. writer. Wonderful. Yeah. And he's worked with the Dalai Lama, and his interface with scientists. And he ended up in our conversation, which was about many things, ended up talking about the environment, which is a place a lot of my conversations come to, whoever I'm speaking with, right? Because this is, at least now, on people's minds. And he, he made this observation that... Uh, of course, we need nothing short of an evolution, which is what you just described, of our behaviors and our mindset and, you know, how we, how we live our lives, how we lead our lives, especially in the global north. Um, but he said evolutionary pressure, is, is a, it, it comes when, when what is at stake precisely is survival. <laughs> and yet, as you and I talked about a minute ago, we're still kind of inside the test tube, and, and I can hear about the Arctic melting, but I can't. It's not happening in my backyard, so I should be able to change, but I, I don't know what that means. And I wonder, though, I know you're out there. You're out there in the world talking to people, also seeing places where people are taking this on. And I, you know, I wonder, I want to ask the question this way. You know, What have you learned about moral imagination changing and moral motivation, like how change really begins to happen uh, where it happens. Let me just tell you a few stories about this work we've been doing. So we started this thing called 350.org, right, which was this somewhat harebrained attempt to do global organizing, which nobody does anyway because the whole world insists on speaking different languages. It's hard to do. <laughs> and we set ourselves up for failure in a sense because we picked a pretty obscure scientific data point to rally around, 350 parts per million CO2. And we didn't have any celebrities or rock stars or anything. But, you know, I just – I want to interrupt you. But just, you yeah. know, when you said 2007, there was this monumental 
observation about 350 parts. Yeah. But I don't. Did that make headlines? Was it on the no, front page of the New York no, Times? No, no one paid any I'm attention to it. I'm not getting this. Okay. I, I wrote the first piece about it, an op-ed piece for the Washington Post, and then sat down with six, six, seven recent graduates of Middlebury College, where I'm connected here, mm-hmm. and we decided to see if we could build a global movement. We okay. had so virtually you, you no money. You took it up, <laughs> even though it had each not made them, the front page. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So each, so because I follow all of this and I knew what was going on and I was writing about it, each one of those kids took continent, okay, okay, and set out to organize it. And they went out and found people like themselves, mostly young people or, in many cases, people of faith, very concerned and willing to go to work. And in the course of 18 months, they built this – we built this network of people who wanted to take action. And it wasn't the usual suspects. People sometimes say, oh, the environmental movement is rich white people. When we had our big global day of action on October 24th, there were 181 countries where it happened, by far the most widespread day of political action in the planet's history, 5,200 events. And the ones, some of the biggest were in the most unlikely places. Let me tell you a story about moral imagination. Okay. um, We organized a a camp in Africa for young people to sort of learn to be climate organizers. Many of these kids had never left their country before. Most of them had never been on an airplane. Some of them we had to walk by the hand through the airport in Johannesburg because they were so uh, terrified by the whole thing. But they came. They were incredibly understood exactly what organizing meant in many ways much better than many Americans do because they come from places where communities are still intact and it's not such a foreign idea, you know, speaking to your neighbors and things. (laughs) They went back home and did amazing work. So we didn't hear from the two sisters, 19 and 20, who had come from Ethiopia. We didn't hear from them for a couple of months because the internet connection is no good in Ethiopia. It's hard. Um, um, But we got a call about three weeks before our big day saying, it's going great. Every high school in Addis Ababa now is studying global warming this fall Mm -hmm. because, you know, we've got this, we've built this curriculum for them and they're all learning about 350 and it's going great. We're going to have a big event. Then we didn't hear for another two weeks. The day before our big global day of action, we got a sort of panicked, giddy call from them saying, look, we've got 15,000 people in the streets in Addis Ababa, and it's really great, and we've got great pictures, but the Internet's down, so we don't have any way to get them to you. Well, we were (laughs) panicked, desperate, because we needed those pictures to prove to the world's media that this was a real thing, that this was going to be a huge global day that they needed to cover. So we got on the phone. One of my colleagues, who'd kid who'd spent a lot of time in Africa, got on the phone and they tracked. I could hear him bellowing away in Amharic, you know, down the hall. Right. Found found the um, uh, that there was one five star hotel, there's one foreigner hotel in Addis, and they had internet in the lobby. Problem solved. We sent in five people, one after another. They all got kicked out of the lobby because they were all black. We finally mm-hmm. found a white person, handed them the computer, went in. They punched the button. Twenty minutes later, we had those pictures up on CNN and BBC and Reuters and whatever, and the world was seeing what these two sisters had managed to do in Addis Ababa. It sort of set the tone for the next 36 hours 
as we got pictures from, you know, huge pictures from 300 rallies across India and 300 across China, uh, from mosques all over the Middle East, from a picture, you know, the one that one of the ones that really made me almost weep was uh, I'd been in Bethlehem a couple of weeks before, meeting with people there, and they'd said, okay, here's what we're going to try and organize. I didn't think they could pull it off, but they did. Along the shores of the rapidly dwindling Dead Sea, the Israelis made a giant human three. The Palestinians on their beach, an enormous human five. The Jordanians <laughs> along their seashore, a big zero. We got plane up and got pictures of all three of them, mm. making the point that we're going to have to work across borders of all kinds to try to make this sort of change happen. And do these rallies, these three and the five and the zero on the shores of disappearing waters, do they also reflect, represent changed um, daily lives, ordinary lives, communal lives? Well, to some degree. I mean, most of the people who are doing this kind of work, or many of them, are people who've already changed their daily lives. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, and lots and lots of them took place in ways to help others do that. So we had hundreds of places around the world where 350, there were groups of 350 people riding bikes, right? Like through the streets of Beijing, um, um, <laughs> trying to make the point that China needs to go back to bicycles and that many people are doing it. Uh, 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 or through parts of the U.S. that are facing the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, We had lots of places where there were farmers' markets and people, uh, you know, piling up 350 pumpkins in these beautiful sort of public art projects and making the point that we're going to need to figure out how to eat much more locally, Mm. on and on and on. So, yeah, but the point of them is not – we're way past the – point where we're going to solve this problem, as I said, one light bulb at a time. Right. We're going to have to do it politically. And so that was the main point, to try and bring together people in such a way that they can put enough pressure on our leaders, they can lead our leaders, as it were, towards the point of the kind of global agreements that might actually begin to solve this biggest of all problems. And you've written about cities where people are, as you say, living more lightly on the earth, where people have communally uh, created different models. So talk to me. With, uh, Kerala, India is one of them. Uh, yes. Yeah. I, I spent a lot of time, this was years ago, for a book that I wrote called Hope, Human, and Wild. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was looking for places that were different. And they're not that many. I mean, the sort of American consumer hegemony about what the world's supposed to look like has washed over much of the world. But there were some really interesting places. So one was this city in Brazil called Curitiba. Right. I don't think there was anybody particularly environmental there. Uh, They were mostly concerned with making life decent for poor people, average people. But as a result, they built the most environmentally sound city on the planet, probably. They had, among other things, the best bus system in the world. It moves more people more quickly than the New York City subway system, even though it's a much smaller city. And the reason is because they took the decision that here public transit was going to have priority over private transit. There are a lot of stoplights that turn red when a car approaches if there's a bus anywhere near. It's not a good city to drive a car in. It's a great city to take the bus in. They built – the mayor, who was an architect, Hmm. 
took a lawn chair and put it down at the nearest bus stop to City Hall. And he sat there for a day trying to figure out why buses were slow. And what he figured out was that it was that moment that it, you know, the 20 seconds it took to walk up the stairs, put your quarter in the box, and go sit down. He sketched and quickly had built this series of what they called tube stations, these elevated platforms across the city. You'd put your coin in and walk up the steps and wait for the bus, and when it came, the doors opened like the doors on a subway, and you could get 20 people a second on and off. So it was that mix of technological insight, but more importantly, social insight. Right. Uh, we're going to make the public more important than the private that really worked. And what do you know? The result was that people really came to love living in that place. <laughs> when he left office, when he was term limited out of office, he had a 94 percent approval rating. People would send delegations from other Brazilian cities saying, will you move to our city and run for mayor there? <laughs> okay. I, it doesn't surprise me because the thing that's – I mean – I wrote a book not long ago about what's going on in our country and trying to understand why Americans have become not just environmentally out of sync but more importantly in a sense why we've become so dissatisfied. The number of Americans who are happy with their lives right. uh, has shrunk consistently since the mid-50s yeah. even though our accumulations way up and I think the reason is the same. I think the data is pretty clear. It's because we've privatized our lives in such amazing ways. I mean, we've spent 50 years pursuing the American dream of building a larger house farther apart from the next guy. Right. That's been how we've def – and we've said, boy, that's what we want. And the result has been not only that we burn insane amounts of fossil fuel, it's also been that the average American has half as many close friends as someone 50 years ago, eats mm -hmm. meals with friends, family, neighbors – half as often as 50 years well, ago. I think even, it's no wonder we're not so happy. <clears throat> even having a sense of common life, right? I mean, because that Absolutely. is that's a that's an, a piece of imagination that we need to tackle some of these problems. I mean, you know, the story you just told in Brazil reminds me of something we've come across as we've uh, as I've tried to talk to people about issues around environment and ecology. We did a program where I interviewed Majora Carter, who I'm sure you know, mm, who has absolutely. revitalized, created Sustainable South Bronx, and also Cal DeWitt, who I know you, uh, you know yes. because I've read you writing about him, who has been uh, creating a sustainable environment uh, and community in the Wisconsin, uh, what, do you, what do you call it, not, low, what do you call um, marsh, oh, what's the word I'm yeah, looking for? You wetlands. know, in the wetlands, mm -hmm. right, of Wisconsin. So two very different places. We ended up calling that program Discovering Where We Live because it wasn't, it wasn't an abstract notion of environmentalism that, that changed these communities. It was, as you say, it was, it was honoring their, the common life um, and, and, and really addressing um, not just ecological problems but social problems. And it, 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 it wasn't that kind of holistic approach to life and to shared life that then environmentalism becomes this linchpin. So um, let me tell you, here's a statistic that I really like, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that's, that, that everybody, all environmentalists and things have been happy about in the last couple of years is this explosion of interest in local food, right? Right. Um, because, you know, in just if for no other reason, it takes a lot less energy to move a tomato five miles than 
5,000 miles. And and not coincidentally, it tastes better. I mean, I traveled 2,000 miles yesterday. I know how I feel. That's also how the tomato feels. Right. But, <laughs> exactly. But the, the real reason that's so interesting that we like farmer's markets, I think, turns out to be they're different. Uh, parasociologists followed uh, 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 shoppers first through the supermarket, then through the farmer's market. Everybody's been to the supermarket. You know how it works. You walk in. You fall into a light fluorescent trance. You visit the stations of the cross around the perimeter of the supermarket. You emerge with your items. That's it. When they followed people around the farmer's market, they were having, on average, 10 times as many conversations per visit. Okay, mm-hmm. 10 times is a lot. Uh, uh, we tell ourselves, you know, what a great chic thing we've invented, the farmer's market. In fact, that's how all human beings shopped for food until 50 years ago, and 80% of the planet still does. does, No wonder it feels good. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is what we're built for. We're not built for the uh, uh, hyper-individualized, deep consumer life that we've been living. And clearly, the planet's not built for it either, because it's going to be many degrees warmer than we can tolerate unless we cut it out and cut it out soon. So, you know, I, I, I have, was really intrigued as I was preparing for this to, to read. And in your, for example, in the new introduc- the 2006 introduction you wrote to The End of Nature, that in these years since you wrote The End of Nature in 89 and now, and this turns up in all your writing, um, you've become much less focused on individual uh, life and uh, life in action and, on, and much more on the, the value of community and this as the context for all the important changes we need to make. How did that it's, start to occur to you? Um, I mean, did that happen in your life as well as in uh, some, your thinking? Definitely. Um, you know, at a certain point, we had to move out of the wilderness and into the more pastoral landscape of Vermont, where I now live, which is a place with remarkably deep community. Uh, the only place in the country, almost the only place where we still say govern ourselves at town meeting every year. And you kind of have to have strong communities to keep the place running. Mm-hmm. Um, so that probably played some role in it. And so certainly did uh, the reporting for, you know, in places like Kirichiba or Kerala in India. Mm-hmm. But it's also, I think, at some certain level, um, been for me a, a is close to a kind of religious insight uh, as uh, as uh, you know, I'm likely to get. I'm right. the furthest thing from a theologian. You know, I'm a sometime Methodist Sunday school well, teacher. You, yeah, you've called yourself a fairly orthodox Methodist, whatever that there means. There you go. Yeah, but it did occur. You know, it does. Uh, if you read the darn gospel, um, it does at a certain point become obvious, even to the dim like me, what it's about. In fact, the reason that the gospels are so effective literarily, one of the reasons, is that. The apostles serve the device of sort of standing in for all of us. They're incredibly dim. They keep forgetting the whole point, you know, and saying, mm-hmm. why, why are we doing this again? And Jesus always has to keep saying, well, remember, love your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, right. Love your, I mean, neighbor seems to be what it's about. Mm-hmm. We live in a world where we're busily drowning our neighbors, you, giving them diseases, <laughs> on and on and on. And you've written, the big question for the century may turn out to be how fast we can relearn the skill of neighborliness. 
I think that that's very true, and that's one of the things that makes me optimistic because I think we want to relearn it. I don't. I think that if the high consumer society that we built, the highly privatized society we lived in, if it made us incredibly happy, then all would be lost because we'd have no chance of breaking out of it merely because we were destroying the planet. But the fact that we also uh, aren't enjoying it all that much, there's something potentially subversive in the possibility of trading in some of that for real community. And it's that subversiveness that religious institutions embody, you know, churches and synagogues and mosques are the last places in our society, the last big institutions that can remember some reason other than accumulation for human existence. And hence, they're potentially really subversive. You know, we did a project earlier this year after the, uh, we did a project after the economic crisis was unfolding. And um, I spoke with this young man in who lives in Manhattan and who'd gone into financial services and then like all of his friends had been laid off and one of the things he was revisiting was um how was community right i mean we heard that a lot from people coming through the economic crisis rediscovering their need for their neighbors but also how they didn't even know how to express that or reach out right you know he talked yeah i mean he talked about how his parents had always told him stories about growing up in the jim crow south how they always would would go to their neighbors if they needed eggs or butter or sugar you know just i mean very basic everyday interaction and how he had once done that and his parents had scolded him and said, you know, it's, <laughs> right? And, you know, a generation later, that's not done. That's, um, it sends the wrong messages to the neighbors. But he was really looking at that story as um, an analogy for what he wanted to recover. Cheap fossil fuel, you know, heated the planet. It made us rich. But it also, maybe most profoundly, made us the first kind of our species who have had no practical need of our neighbors for anything. Right. You know, if you've got a credit card and an internet connection, you can have your groceries delivered to your doorstep. You, know, you don't <laughs> right. need right. anything. Um, and we've, for whatever reason, celebrated that as some great uh, independence. But it's not what we're built for. It's not what any of our religious systems imagine. Uh, it's not psychologically what who we are. Uh, it was a big detour, and we got to figure out if we can, in many ways, jam on the brakes, toss this system in reverse, and get out of this cul-de-sac before it does us in entirely. It's something you've also written about that I, I just think is really important, that it might sound easy. It might sound obvious. I mean, it does sound obvious when you say it that way. Um and that thus it would be simple to become neighbors again. But but you've pointed out that being a neighbor is a skill like any other. And as you say, <laughs> we've we've we don't we don't have an instinct anymore to knock on the door of our neighbor to borrow an egg or even know what exactly how we would say it. Would we apologize? <laughs> it's a little hard. It's why I'm so interested in this development of local economies and things. Mm-hmm. I don't think preaching about community really gets you all that far because we have let those skills wither. I think it's very important to 
provide the opportunities for people in their daily lives, like farmers markets, for instance, mm-hmm. to relearn some of these things, to relearn contact with each other. And given those opportunities, I think we react well to them. And you can see a few other promising uh, fronts, you know. I've I, I got to say, quite regardless of the uh, uh, legal issues and things, part of me has been pleased to watch the old model for the music industry break down. You okay. know, they can't okay. sell CDs anymore because what's replaced it, the part of the music industry that's growing has been local live performance and festivals mm. growing mm. fast and reminding us that, yes, we like music, but what we really like is music in each other's company. Right. You know? And again, that's one of those things that's been part of human culture forever until a blip ago in history. Uh, absolutely. And mm-hmm. and it seems likely that music will survive even if, you know, record labels have a hard time. Right, right. <laughs> well, let's talk. Let's talk some more. We we touched on this a bit about your moral and spiritual perspective, your motive, your your sense of what this all means and 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 what is at stake. I was really fascinated to read that at one point in your life, um, you had a shocking experience when you of reading a copy of Stephen Mitchell's translation of Job. And you talk a lot about Job. Tell me what 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 was shocking to you. Well, Job is, you know, of all the books of the, certainly of the Hebrew Bible, for me, the by far the most powerful and interesting. And partly because it's such a modern story, you know, it's unresolved. Basically, uh, rabbis and everybody, a lot of them just said, well, this, you know, ignore this one. <laughs> it's too weird uh, because <laughs> it, it's very unorthodox. I mean, you, everybody knows the story. Job finds himself cursed by God. He's lying on a dung heap at the edge of town covered with oozing sores. His flocks are dead. His family's dead. He's, you know, he's in a world of hurt. And his friends arrive uh, to help him work through this. And, and he they keep he keeps lamenting what's going on and calling it unjust and his friends keep saying oh no no it's you know you sinned or one of your children sinned that's you know this is how it works and that's why you're being punished the sort of conventional world view and job much to his credit is not the patient job of legend he doesn't say uh, you know yes you're right i guess you're right he keeps demanding that God appear and explain why this thing has happened to him. Um, And God finally does. And I think the soliloquy that God delivers in the last three chapters of Job, I think is the longest sustained speech that God gives anywhere in the Mm -hmm. Bible, Old Testament or New. And it's a remarkably interesting speech because it doesn't answer any of the questions that Job has set out. Instead, it's notable for two reasons. One... God gives this incredibly beautiful, biologically accurate, crunchy, sexy tour of the physical universe, all the kind of interesting animals and, you know, uh, and, and in very uh, 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 in very wild terms, you know, uh, do you hunt, he asked Job, do you hunt prey for the lion and her cubs? You know, do you help the vulture find uh, right, right. a carrion on which to feast on and on and on? 
The other thing that's notable about it is how incredibly sarcastic God is. He's taunting Job the whole time. Where were you? If you're so smart, you tell me. Where do I keep the wind? Can you tell the proud waves here you shall break and no further? Do you know where the storms are, the warehouse for the storms? Well, you know, after listening to this for two or three chapters, Job basically says, sorry I asked, you know, and, right. and It is all down. about the majesty of nature, all the analogies there. The message the seems world. to be, Job, you're not the center of things. Right. The, the sort of your questions about justice and things are kind of puny. Uh, you're a small part of something very large and beautiful, and that should be enough. And for Job, it appears to be enough. Right. So the shocking part in reading it now is realizing that for the first time in human history, we're no longer in the position Job's in. So now we just spit right back at God. You know, do you, can you tell the proud waves where to break? Hell yes. We think we're going to raise the level of the ocean a couple of meters in the course of this century. You know, Do you know where the storms are kept? Yeah, we're pushing cyclones one after another across the Pacific. You know, We've got our thumb on the scale. In a very short order, we got very, very big. Human beings have always been in Job's position, small a small part of something large. We're now a big and dominant part. It isn't working. It doesn't feel good. And our job is to figure out how to get smaller again. And I think it's essentially a theological task, at least as much as anything else. I mean, you you have raised the theological questions about... You know, you have a few of them, but here here's one. that So much of our... You know, and I use that word hour, but so many people's sense, and this has come up many, many times in my conversation, so much of our sense of mystery, of transcendence, uh, even people who are not uh, strictly religious, there's something in the natural world. You know, I was there for Einstein in the laws of physics, right? There's something that, that this, this is where we have a sense of awe at the very existence of life. And um, and people describe this in different ways and, and take it to different places, but a sense of intelligence uh, behind the universe or a, a creator. Um, but it's the bene- I think it's mainly yeah. I think it's mainly just this sense of being small in comparison to mm. something large. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything everything in the sort of consumer world tries to give you the opposite message that you're the center of the world. You're I remember taking these mm-hmm. kids out camping. Uh, in the Adirondacks, high school kids. Um, even though they lived out in the woods, many of them had never camped before. I had six kids who we were camped on a island uh, in a lake, and it was new moon, so it was dark, and you could really see the stars. And of the six kids that I was camped with, these were high school seniors, I think, it became clear that four of them had never been shown the Milky Way. All right. right. They'd spent their lives inside watching the other kind of stars on on the square box, you know. And their reaction shown the Milky Way was correct, you know. Someone said, yo, freak me out, dude, <laughs> which right. is pretty much the point – much have been the point at which we became human, you know, when right. some ape looked up and said, yo, freak me out, dude. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a lot of those stars up there. That's, you know, feeling – small in an infinitely vast and beautiful and meaningful and organized and cruel and mysterious right. and buzzing universe. Yeah, that's what Einstein felt. That's what 
anybody who pays attention to something beyond the end of their own nose feels. But our entire society at the moment is geared to trying to make you pay attention only to the end of your own nose and no further. And and so it's it, nature does come as a kind of revelation to a lot of people but, and a powerful but, one. But that you know, I think that the theological questions would begin if 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 in fact we we do we do right now have some power. We are right now powerfully affecting the natural huh. world and destroying uh, a lot of it and 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 creating imbalance. Um, and so there would there would be a, a, a theological question about what that says about God. Right. I don't think there's even that. I mean, what did Oppenheimer, you know, watched the first explosion at Alamogordo and quoted from the Gita. Uh, we are become as gods, destroyers of worlds, mm-hmm. you know. Um, that's where we are right now. It, and that's if where we want to stay yeah. there, <laughs> then we're going to destroy everything. Well, exactly. I mean, but that's where we are right now. But isn't the point of this i mean ultimately we we render through this power we 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 seem to be set to render uh the as you said civilization impossible um so i mean and maybe polar bears will never come back for example but isn't a, a possible outcome of this that that nature wins right i mean so there's many <laughs> i mean there's many and maybe possible that's outcomes. theologically reconcilable. I, I don't know. Perhaps. Um, I mean, nature, I mean, look, look, two billion years from now or something, the sun explodes. And if you back up and take a long enough view of it, doesn't none of it makes any difference anyway. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it hard to back up that far. <laughs> I lack the necessary whatever it is. Okay. You know, we're children of the late Pleistocene. We're born with this suite of flora and fauna around us. It seems to me a good life's work to try to uh, keep some of it intact, Um, um, especially since, you know, in the course of bringing it down, uh, many other theological and moral problems become involved. The billions of people who did nothing to cause this problem, who are going to suffer grievously and mm-hmm. already are, the huge suite of the rest of the world's DNA that we're taking down with us, anybody who has any sense that the earth might be in some way a museum of divine intent, you know, we're just willy-nilly running through the halls slashing at the paintings, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so there's all kinds of deep problems raised. And there's, you know, the sort of answers that people sometimes give have, uh, you know, are in another sense theological. I mean, there are people who say, well, then our response to this should be to become very even more powerful and better gods at doing it. Let's figure out how figure to out the, manage mm-hmm. everything, put a big dome over the planet, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. I don't think – I mean, I think that the physically it's not possible to do that. And I also think it's at some level there's something – uh, you know, uh, silly and ignoble and almost blasphemous about trying it. Hmm. Um, um, I think that the response we need is to figure out how to restrain ourselves, how to pull ourselves in. It strikes me that religious thinking back at least as far as the Buddha and probably farther has centered mostly on the idea that we become most fully human when we don't put ourselves at the center of everything, right. when we manage to to imagine something larger, the community, the, the natural world, the, uh, all these things. Mm-hmm. That's the leap of imagination and faith that we now need to make. 
And it's very, very difficult because we've been assiduously schooled in the culture in which we live to think of ourselves first and foremost and, you know, devil take the hindmost, almost literally. Um, and and so it's going to be it's going to be harder than it should, but that's the task. And and as you know, there are there are a lot of religious people, um, including a lot of evangelical and Pentecostal Christians, who've really mobilized around this. Um, but it, it occurs to me that um, you know, and it's just occurring to me now as we're speaking that maybe something that's missing from our public discussion of this, or sort of the raising of the level of civic awareness, is that. We don't talk about it in moral and spiritual terms, and and that is where people's guts are mobilized. And so, you know, I'm really intrigued. I was intrigued to find out that you, in fact, bring uh, theological questions and and moral language and resources um, into your thinking and writing and living of, and the way you live this out, dude. But I haven't. I hadn't been so aware of this. I mean, do do other journalists ask you about this aspect of your thinking, or do you know bring up the term moral imagination? Eh, sometimes, um, but but less. Um, but that's all right. In many of the places where we do our work, it's the the only thing that you know we talk about. So mm-hmm. it was you know incredibly like what? exciting. What do you mean? Where, for example? Well, like, like when we were doing all this organizing for 350.org, this work that goes on and that I hope people will help us with, uh, uh, you know, it was very beautiful to be able to work with religious communities straightforwardly and in in the sort of language that we share. And some of it was very easy for me because it was out of the places where I was most comfortable. So we had hundreds and hundreds of churches, thousands of churches around the world ringing their bells 350 times on that Saturday, uh, uh, sort of sounding the alarm in a sense with the bell in the steeple. Those were, you know, those were Unitarians and Methodists and and, and Presbyterians and Lutherans and the people that, you know, sort of tradition from which I come. But it was even more exciting for me to see it happening across traditions, you know. That same Saturday, October 24th, the Torah portion in every synagogue in the world just happened to be the story of Noah. Okay. And so people used that to organize like crazy. Mm. One of the, we, we down people uploaded pictures of these events they were having on October 24th to our website. Which I think there's about 23,000 now in our Flickr photo stream, which is more than you can actually go through, believe me. But one of the ones that meant the most to me was of a pretty big rally on the campus of Wheaton College in Illinois. Uh, This is the place that people sometimes describe as the Vatican of Evangelical America. Or the Uh, Evangelical uh, Harvard. (laughs) It's it's where Billy Graham went to school, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, To see lots and lots of young people there realizing that their faith commitment requires uh, a deep attention to these kind of questions, well, that that meant a lot to me. The same to see picture after. We had uh, a whole endless collection of pictures from around the world of women uh, in burqas. Sometimes you couldn't even see their faces, but holding uh, 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 350 banners and out organizing demonstrations. Hmm. Um, uh, understanding that underneath the burqa there were people who were thinking and feeling about their children and their future just the same way that that we were. Right. Um, 
that's all that's you can different people in, in different parts of each of us are reached through different languages right. you know scientific uh, 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 or moral and spiritual mm-hmm. uh, and and it's and what I liked most about the organizing in a sense is that we didn't use the shortcut that people sometimes do which is to to try and and find celebrities and things and say here you should care about this because this movie star right, does right, right. you know that's sometimes effective but it reaches you at that other level as a consumer as a whatever we needed to reach people where they really really were so we could build the kind of movement that might actually get something done right i mean i remember when when we had Richard Sizek on the show a few years ago when he was still uh, head of the vice president of National Association of Evangelicals and yes. had begun to call himself a convert to the climate of, to the science of climate yes. change. And we aired that program and we heard from so many people from across this spectrum. I mean, said, I'm a pagan and I care about environmental <laughs> issues and I would like to work with him, with this evangelical, right? And I, I mean, I, I guess I'm saying I did experience a real moral passion there from people um, from many directions, and and we're excited to to uh, to imagine this as something that they could share and with very different others, like just like just what you're describing. I think that many many you know, except for the people from whom these divisions are profitable to them in their political or economic life, I think almost everybody is ready and hopeful for ways to work across those divisions right. to have them be part of the beautiful human diversity instead of being, you know, gates between people who are completely other. And there's no reason that they need to be uh, those kind of barriers. Uh, It should be completely possible and it is completely possible to figure out how to do shared work that matters with people who approach the world from a different place. Because usually the place they approach it isn't actually all that different. I also think in terms of something this enormous like climate change where people – we are realizing that something must be done and yet it feels overwhelming to get a sense that there are other people who you didn't even know about um, who have different kinds of resources that you can tackle this with is empowering. Uh, Absolutely right. I mean, look, (laughs) global warming – is the first global scale problem, the first one we're going to have to solve altogether if we're going to solve it. it in some some sense, it's like a final exam, you know? It's a real test <laughs> okay. as to whether the big brain is going to turn out to be adaptive or not or whether the big brain came with a big enough heart to to make a difference. The only reason it's not like a final exam is you don't have to do it on your own. In fact, mm. we can't answer these set of questions on our own. The only way we can answer them is if we're all cribbing off each other, you know? Mm-hmm. And and so it's a really really interesting moment. We're going to find out whether this particular evolutionary idea was a good one or not. So, um I asked you a little while ago to talk about some really uh, really basic information that people could use to begin to wrap their minds around this. And I want to ask you a similar question. 
uh, again, there's lots of conflicting information about what one can do that is helpful. And, uh, right, you know, one year it's drive a hybrid and the next year it's not. It's one year it's we can create alternative sources for fossil fuel and then the next year that's just as bad for the universe. Recycling is good. Recycling doesn't matter. So where would you want to propose a different way to start thinking about what one can do? And you've talked a lot about 350.org, so I'm going to assume that joining the, yeah. your movement is, is the beginning. But what else? Where where can you say what can you say that that will not be disproven next week or next month or next sure. year? Sure, no, I mean, if look, it, it, burning fossil fuel is the root of this problem, and so ways that we can figure out to use less of it are the answer. And what's interesting is that burning more and more fossil fuel is almost always, uh, you know, or often uh, uh, because we're becoming more and more and more privatized. So many of the answers are about doing things together. So, yes, it's a good idea to drive a hybrid compared to driving an SUV. It's a much better idea to get on the bus compared with driving a hybrid. Okay. Uh, it's a much better idea even than that to do what Europeans have done, which is get together with their neighbors and demand that their politicians build a great train network so that they can, without even having to think about it, be innate environmentalists all the time. Okay. Um, you know, those are, that's sort of the, and you can do that same kind of scale of things in regard to food or uh, almost anything else. Okay. Well, um, give me another example. Just, that's really, that's well, really useful. So one more. <laughs> okay. So, you know, let's think about another commodity that we all use every day, food, three times a day. Okay. Okay. Uh, at the moment, the average bite of food that reaches an American's lips has traveled 2,000 miles to get there. That essentially means that it's been marinated in crude oil before you get it. Um, uh, so start thinking about how to change that. A, maybe you uh, uh, start uh, cooking more and better yet, cooking for a bunch of people at one time, which means you have your neighbors over or you figure out how to share cooking and have the pleasure of pot. I'm a Methodist, so potlucks are, you know, deep <laughs> okay. in my DNA, All you know. Right. Um, um, uh, uh, you start eating lower on the food chain because it's clear that, you know, eating lots of red meat is a big problem in terms of the emissions it causes. Okay. You start searching out your neighbors to buy food from them. Find the farmers who live near you. Now, maybe it costs a little bit more. Maybe not because you've knocked out a bunch of middlemen, but maybe it costs a tiny bit more. And by buying that food, it means you have a little less food to go, a little less money to go buy something else with. Well, if that's what it takes to eat responsibly, then that's what you should do. And probably the little bit less that you're buying of something else will end up having some kind of good environmental impact too. Okay. Um, uh, this is advice for people who still have some margin left. It doesn't work for the poorest people in our society who have to figure out how to scrape by. And it's one of the reasons that the great gulf between rich and poor the world around is now not just a sin, it's an enormous practical inconvenience to getting anything done. But it does allow all of us who still have some set of choices and margin to make those choices not 
just in the direction of the what seems environmentally obvious, but in the direction of what builds strong communities. Right. Because in the end, it's strong communities that are efficient, uh, uh, that replace consumptive pleasure with deep human pleasure, that allow us to imagine a future that actually works. Yeah, and I, I mean, I just want to underline that. I mean, what is good, what builds strong communities is good for the environment. Is that, I think that's generally true? I think it's almost always true, and I don't think it's any surprise, <laughs> you know? I mean, we're, we're communal animals at mm-hmm. some level. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that many generations ago that we were all sitting around, you know, picking lice out of each other's fur. Right. Um, um, that's how people, you know, how our ancestors spent their days. Uh, so it shouldn't surprise us that that's what we're kind of built at some level to do and that everything begins to go awry when we – uh, here's a here's something that uh, here's one anecdote that always struck me. Um, it, it came from the height of the housing boom uh, some years ago, before it was clear it was going to ruin us financially. Back when it was just a kind of spectacle, and a, a New York Times reporter in the real estate section asked a question that had occurred to me often, which was. What's actually in those houses the size of junior high schools that keep appearing on the ridgelines, you know? And the answer turned out to be uh, in many of them, not just the huge ones, but in all sorts of the kind of starter castles for entry-level monarchs that were appearing across the landscape, they were coming with dual master bedrooms, okay? The, the, the husband snored, the wife pulled off the blankets, the American solution, extra 900 square feet. Big environmental cost, but more to the point, you know, what does it say about where we've reached when it, you sort of, your goal is to, you know, be hunkered down in your own cave, staring out across the hall at your mate, you know? <laughs> We'd gone a long ways down this path, mm-hmm. and and so it's now that we've hit bottom in many ways financially environmentally psychologically it's time to go in a different direction just as fast as ever we can and see if we can't make it in time hmm. and we don't know yet hmm. there's scientists who think we've waited too long to get started global warming's too big and too powerful we don't know Right. They tell us the best science that we have a window left open. That's why I spend all my time doing what I do, and it's really exciting to see a lot of other people stepping up in the same way. We just have a couple more minutes, but are you all right? I want to ask you a few more questions. Oh yeah, okay. No, I'm good. We, I mean, this is an incredible luxury to have, be able to have a real long conversation, and there are plenty of people who download the entire unedited conversation and podcast it. So, um. All right. Something, this may be a little self-indulgent, but something I really enjoy about your writing is that you often use the term at the turn of the century, <laughs> which is the is the way I talk. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I just did this, uh, I just was involved in the, uh, just an online forum around the Kandinsky exhibition at the Guggenheim mm-hmm. in New York. And one of the things that I, I, I felt was, worth thinking about was um you know there would be some some people feeling that well well in Kandinsky's age everything was open everything was possible but you know I said really we live in a fantasy age as well we are turn of the century people 
and mm-hmm. old forms and structures and narratives have broken down and broken open, and it's a terrifying time. And yes, it is a time of possibility. Um, it's the, the, the kind of possibility that comes when all else has failed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just it's interesting for me to think about about historical perspective. You know, get, getting a sense of that. I mean, it's interesting for me to think about that you wrote The End of Nature in 1989, which mm-hmm. is the year the Berlin Wall fell. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's how we all understood what was making history that year. And it was, but we were also already several decades into, sci- some scientists were several decades into an awareness that climate was changing. And in fact, this may be much more what determines, I mean, the end of the fall of the Berlin Wall may have been more the end of something than the beginning of something. And, and uh this is the crisis that we were already in the midst of and couldn't see. Absolutely. And <laughs> that is the life and death struggle now. And so the good news is that, you know, things arise too out of the blue that are that are kind of wild cards that, uh, that may really help us. I, I spend a lot of time thinking about what those wild cards might be. It's very clear to me that the one that's most interesting in our moment and the thing that's most different in my daily life uh, over the course of my 48 years on the planet was the arrival of the Internet, which obviously has enormous drawbacks and problems. And I wish I didn't spend two hours a day dealing with email and on and on and on. But is a completely new thing, too, that allows us all kinds of possibilities we didn't have. It's our I mean, frontier. We just, we just organized this, you know, huge global thing with basically no money and seven college kids. Right, and right. we could do it because we had the net. More to the point, I mean, think about for the first time in human history, people don't have to choose between staying at home and living a local life and going out in the world and making something of themselves, which is how we used to define that choice. In that sense, now you can have it all. You could stay at home Mm -hmm. and live a very local and non-destructive economic life and still have a wide window open on the rest of the planet. Old prejudices could be blown out, you know, and new ideas blown in through that window. Uh, uh, It raises the possibility of different kind of world. And if you want some tiny sense of what it looks like, go page through the photos at 350.org and you'll get a sense, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, people all over the world and some of them, you know, quite heartbreaking and powerful. Uh, we get a series of pictures from uh, people in Bangladesh who were garment workers. Bangladesh produces more T-shirts than any place in the world. And these people obviously weren't given the day off from their work to go to have a climate rally. They held one above their sewing machines in the five-minute break that they got. These are people who are you know, literally working their fingers to the bone to make their lives better for their children. At the moment, that prospect seems slim because we're probably going to drown their children as we raise the Bay of Bengal. Mm-hmm. But there's some real possibility, some connection, some way for them to feel like they're having some impact on the world around them. That's beautiful, and I'm committed to trying to make that mean something um, going forward. And, you know, again, thinking about all this in, in historical perspective, you, you make kind of a an interesting, ironic remark that 
that the that creationists you know that they intuitively do grasp something which is that that life as we know it lifestyle as we know it in fact has existed for a very 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 short time and and i think may well i i don't know if there's any question that it's going to radically alter um in, uh, within, sh- in these generations so you know i think about this period of time we were both born in 1960 mm-hmm. you know i wonder if uh this era in which people like us went maybe went thousands of miles away to college or th- sent their children thousands of miles away to college, uh, you know, as a rite of passage backpacked through Europe or Latin America, um, that we didn't think twice about getting on an airplane to go on a business trip, right, or to see friends, Um Will this way of living with, you know, with this kind of, is that going to go away? Like a hundred years from now, will people look at some of this and just not believe that we live this way? Uh, They may. I mean, I think we're going to have to learn to do a lot more travel via Google than American Airlines, you know. Um, uh, We're going to have to learn to stretch our minds in different ways and learn to really fall in love with our local places. Uh, But I think that the best parts about the world that we've built are things that we can preserve. We're going to have to do different, have different ways of doing them. You know, the best part of travel is the kind you describe, the backpack across Europe, not the visit to Club Med so you can just recreate your everyday okay. life in a warmer spot, you know. Right. But even if you can't backpack across Europe, you can now have a relationship with someone in Europe in many ways more deeply and profoundly than it was easy anyway for someone of a couple of generations ago because you can be in daily contact with them, hourly contact with right. them if you want. Uh, you know, uh, 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 Skype is is uh, a very interesting, uh, different way of being in touch with people um, um, and staying at home. I don't know. I don't know how the world exactly is going to change. I know that the main features of the world we inhabit are the result of our access to cheap fossil fuel. That's why our cities sprawl. That's why we drive everywhere by ourselves, uh, on and on and on. I know that that has to change, that physics and chem- – I mean the negotiation that's underway internationally and whatever we think is between – China and the U.S. and the EU. It's really not. The real negotiation underway is between human beings on the one hand and physics and chemistry on the other. (laughs) That's a really tough negotiation because physics and chemistry are notoriously poor bargainers. They state their bottom line and that's it. We're going to have no choice one way or another but to adapt, whether it's gracefully or in a violent and ugly fashion, to adapt to that demand of bottom, basic bottom line of the planet. But I think that we retain the capacity to do it in elegant and graceful ways. That's the hope anyway, but it really requires us to do it fast and with real commitment. Elegantly, but quickly. That's it. <laughs> so, you know, you've written about the sadness that descended on you as you wrote The End of Nature uh, 30 years ago. And I wonder, these you know so much about this 
this, what's at stake here? Um, do, do, and you have all these facts at your fingertips. I mean, do they, do they haunt you? Um, I'm, I think the advantage of having written about this 20 years ago is that I've had two decades to work my way through okay. the, uh, you know, whatever, uh, whatever those cycles of grief and whatever that we, you know, all the denial and bargaining and acceptance and yada yada that you supposedly go through. I'm like on cycle 11 or whatever. Okay. Uh, you know, I've had a lot of time. Um, so yes, I, you know, part of me is still completely haunted and sad, and and uh, part of me never takes. A moment for granted. I love to ski in the winter, cross-country ski above all else. And there's not a day when I'm out skiing in the woods when I'm not thinking this is a gift and not something to be taken for granted because it's not going to be here all that much longer probably. Mm. Um, On the other hand, I've gotten through enough of that that I can take enormous joy in the prospect of people coming together to do something about it. Right. Uh, I waited 20 years to see what the global warming movement would look like when it finally emerged. And it's beautiful. It's diverse. It's on both sides of the divide between rich and poor. It's from every faith around the world. Uh, it's young predominantly but not completely. Um, it's really, really wonderful. And that gives me an enormous charge of of deep joy. Uh, I don't know whether we got it started in time. I curse myself sometimes for not figuring this out a long time ago um, and trying to build it then. Um, We're doing it as fast as we can now. It feels very, very good to be taking action much better than just sitting helplessly by. And you, you have a teenage daughter, is that right? I do. I have a 16-year-old. So what is the effect on her of living with you? And how does living with her make you think differently about how this will all go? Well, of course, it raises the stakes in some other way emotionally in powerful ways. And probably I don't even think about them that often because it's too intense and too hard. For her, you know, I mean, well, there were – she's a good Harry Potter fan and there were – several years when she referred to me as the dark lord because I was so (laughs) deciduous about turning out the lights. No, no, just because I turned out the lights uh, (laughs) all the time. Um, But she's turned into a great activist. She went with me to India this past summer and worked with uh, elementary school kids all across India doing sort of poster contests and essay contests. She runs this great literary magazine for kids called Bookworm. And so she was getting them completely involved in the climate fight uh, in ways where they could. Uh, uh, So, you know, we we work on together, and that's good fun. Uh, And and most of the people I work with are all, you know, 16 or between 16 and 25. Well, that's really – this is my last question. But, you know, I I mean, I say in my my engagement with younger people – I also have a 16-year-old daughter, but also – People I am in conversation with, people I work with, um, I am very excited. I feel like they have a sensibility. They've they've grown up with the internet. They they have a completely different imagination. Absolutely. I mean, technologically and morally, somehow, um, globalization isn't an abstract concept. It's it's you know it's something Absolutely. they know in their being. Um, do you so, also? So yeah. 
So I, you know, with seven Middlebury College students and essentially almost no money, we organized the biggest day of political action in the planet's history. And it's because they had a visceral, intuitive sense of how to use technology, how how people are connected. They didn't just send e-petitions to each other. Yeah. They used it to organize people on the ground in yeah. real life to do things. But they live in a different uh, mental space and a much, in many ways, much more promising one that goes way beyond national boundaries and at the same time has room for deep, it's both deep and local and wide and global at the same time. And let's hope that it's come in time. Let's hope we mm -hmm. got some of this going in time. It'll be an interesting race to see where it comes out. And and we will we will find out. I mean, it's not going to be a hundred years in the future before we figure out whether we dealt with global warming or not. We'll know in the next few years whether we started uh, to take steps on the scale necessary. It's an exciting, scary, intense moment. It's for our time. You know, we grew up looking backwards at say the civil rights movement or right, something, right. and admiring the people who had the courage and conviction to go put everything on the line and do it then. For our time, um, this is, you know, requires the same moral urgency, the same kind of sacrifice, the same kind of theological rethinking, uh, the same kind of practical change. It's that kind of moment on steroids because it's right. about the whole planet. Right. Well, that's your last word, and this was a wonderful conversation. Thank Friend, you so I can't much. tell you how much I enjoyed it, and I can't tell you how it, I feel uh, completely. Um, I, I like the show so much that I feel like it's bad of me to, you know, waste a good week of it on me. Oh, um, um, you guys no. do amazing work, and, thank you. and I'm really, really grateful. And uh, uh, thank you so much. Well, thank you, and I'm I'm glad to finally have a more direct connection. We, I think that I have a question behind the glass. I'm going to be quiet in my headphones while I listen. Yes. Yeah. All right. Okay. Okay. I'll tell you why they. You know, we we're kind of pegging this, or we're going to air it around the time of Copenhagen. Yes. Um. But what I try to do on every subject is move get a bigger frame of reference than the the event of the moment i mean i know yes. that's an important event but i also yeah, want to yeah, yeah. create a program here that we can put on the air a year from now and not just this december so but i do i should ask you <laughs> um what what do you what what are what are you hoping for in copenhagen how important is that well, what do you want people to know about that that they may not be getting from all the other press coverage on the one hand Copenhagen is the most important international negotiation there's ever been. You know, Yalta or Versailles, mm. their success or failure were measured in decades. This will be measured in geological time. On the other hand, whatever happens there, it's not going to be anywhere near the complete and final answer. We have very much to make sure that Copenhagen is a beginning and not an end, uh, that we don't sign something and then walk away for five or six years like we did after Kyoto. Uh, it's got to be the place where we build this movement, where we take numbers like 350 and give them flesh. And hopefully we'll figure out powerful symbolic ways to do that. For me, one of the high points of Copenhagen will be the church service on the Sunday in the middle of it 
uh, with religious figures from around the world, and it'll be capped by ringing the bell of that cathedral in downtown Copenhagen 350 Mm. times. That's a sound that people need to hear. All right. All right. All right. Thank you so much, and I hope I'll meet you in person one of these days. Me too. God bless, friend. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Mm.